Welcome to the Berkeley Innovation Podcast. This series is brought to you by Berkeley Engineering's Satarja Center for Entrepreneurship and Technology, SCET, on the thriving campus of the University of California, Berkeley. Hello, friends. This is Stephen Torres, your host on this journey of entrepreneurial innovation and technology leadership. On this episode, we're joined by Alexander Fried Oyala. Alex is a UC Berkeley instructor and international educator teaching students and companies how to utilize AI, data science, and blockchain technology. He's the research director of the Data Lab and co-founder of the Blockchain Lab at SCET. He also co-created the DataX framework and the popular Applied Data Science with Venture Applications course here at Berkeley. He's also co-developed and published several academic papers on the international research project, the Berkeley Innovation Index. Alex has started and been part of the founding teams of three successful companies, two in Sweden and one in the U.S. In our conversation, we discussed blockchain, AI, and a few other things. Here's our conversation with Alex. Let's welcome him to the program. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be joining you today, Stephen. So first... Let's get to how do I actually pronounce your name? Uh, so I am from Sweden, yes, as you know, and maybe some of the listeners. So my regular name or what my mom would call me if she like pronounced my full name, it would be Alexander Samuel Fred Oyala. Yeah, that's going to be hard for me to get. Exactly. But then <laughs> the Americanized version of that is like Alexander Samuel Fred Oyala. Ojala or Ohala. <laughs> That's what I said. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So, so say it one more time just so that I have it. Alexander Fried Oyala. Oyala. So the J is pronounced like a Y. Oyala. Exactly. So that was one of the most like difficult things for me to come here and be able yeah. to like communicate with people that I, it was hard for me to like use the J sound, the DJ. Yes. Because we have soft J's in Sweden. Gotcha. Interesting, interesting. Okay. Well, uh, Alex runs our essentially data lab, uh, all of the programs that are going on there, some really exciting things. I'm curious, in your view, what do you see as the most exciting thing right now happening in some of our challenge labs? Oh, wow. So when it comes to the challenge labs, then I'm actually the co-instructor for the blockchain challenge lab this semester. And we have so many cool like student projects that are being run in that Mm -hmm. class right now. One is about how we can set up a system for gun control using blockchain. Another one, another group is looking at automatically executing wills using smart contracts when a person like passes. So you you can be sure that whatever you have written in your will will actually like happen. Wow. And I I love all of the initiatives in that class. So... I guess here's one of the questions that I have is, you know, obviously blockchain's new. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I shouldn't say it's new. It, it, when the paper come out, 2008, is that? Exactly. So where, 10 years ago. So so it's been around for about 10 years. The adoption has been primarily picked up in the cryptocurrencies. Um, 
the use cases and other things. Tell me about this because this is, is this going to happen? Is this not going to happen? I'm, you know, I'd love to get your perspective. You've been teaching on this for a while. Yeah, exactly. So if we jump on the like speculation wagon now, yeah. then many people are talking about blockchains like killer application. And what mm -hmm. would that be? Like, so for the internet, maybe that was like email or maybe it was the e-commerce or something like that. But so people are looking for blockchains, killer application. But I would say that that is actually cryptocurrency. Only the fact that we can have digital money today that doesn't rely on a third party to be like verified and work is amazing. Like that was a dream 10 years ago when mm -hmm. Satoshi Nakamoto released this white paper outlining Bitcoin as a technology. So many people were like skeptical. They said we wouldn't see adoption. They said it wouldn't work. But now 10 years later, people are still using it. And one Bitcoin is like worth $6,000 instead of 0 $0.0025 as it was in 2010. Yeah. So that is tremendous. But then when it comes to other use cases, so many people are talking about supply chain management using blockchains, right. storing health records, right. uh, many other applications in like the fintech space. So like decentralized 24 hour stock exchanges and all of that. Are any of these going to take off? I mean, the reason I say that is this is from afar, you know, and I'm certainly no expert in blockchain. Um, from afar, you see a lot of excitement, but you don't see a whole lot of execution. And what I mean by that is there are corner cases, but there hasn't been anything that's that's kind of mainstream when it comes to commercial viability. And maybe there is, and I just don't know about it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so I'm just curious, you know, obviously data itself in, is huge, but where is this thing going on the commercial application side? So one project that received a lot of coverage now in the media mm -hmm. was a collaboration between IBM and Walmart in order to track the provenance of goods. So they are going to look at greens, especially because I think they had like a greens. You mean like the vegetable leafy greens? Exactly. Okay. So like spinach or kale, stuff like that. The really important stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> My favorite food. Um, but so I think they had like an E. coli outbreak at yes. Walmart like two years ago mm -hmm. um, and that affected their whole like supply chain when it came to greens they actually had to waste so much food because they couldn't track down the source of this mm -hmm. outbreak so now what Walmart wants to implement is the supply chain that is blockchain based mm -hmm. so then from the producer all the way to like the Walmart stores or even the end consumer who like buys the product you would track everywhere where this uh, like spinach package, all of the different intermediaries where it has been in this system. You don't have a system like that today. Couldn't you just do that with a database? Yes, yeah, so people say that you wanna use like a centralized database in order to do that, but then you cannot make sure that everyone has actually, when it's timestamped, where it's tracked right now in the system, would it be recorded in the same way as in a blockchain? Because mm -hmm. that's, that's immutable. So they are going to use Hyperledger, which which is IBM's permission blockchain. Mm -hmm. So it's so basically it's like a, like a database. exactly it's a restricted database, but you can also be sure that the different actors have actually registered the correct information and exactly mm -hmm. where that was, and no one can tamper with it. Is there 
you know, I, I think of this and the, the, I love the idea of the democracy and, you know, the distributed, but doesn't that take a lot of space? Like, isn't, aren't we going to run a, a, a bunch, yeah, amongst space constraints as we continue growing this and have more and more? So are you talking about space, like hard drive space yeah, on a computer, hard drive for space. example? It, and also I think of the energy, right? Doesn't this consume a lot of energy? How's, how's that going to come work about? Yes, you're definitely right. The, we can see like two major scalability issues yeah. right now, both when it comes to like Bitcoin or Ethereum that are these famous like blockchain platforms. Right. So in contrast to the Hyperledger blockchain that we talked about with IBM and Walmart, that is a permissioned one. Then when it comes to Bitcoin and Ethereum, these are public, public ones. I see. So you could set up a Bitcoin node here. You can download the software and all of a sudden you would have the Bitcoin blockchain on your computer. Currently, that takes up around 200 gigabytes of space. So even for a quite like modern laptop, it's difficult yeah. to run a Bitcoin node. Now, if we look at Ethereum, so Bitcoin is only for doing transactions with like cryptocurrencies, right. with Bitcoin okay. as like money. But then Ethereum is this smart contract platform. So that is what is powering all of these decentralized applications. It would be an Ethereum or a similar platform that actually hosted all of these applications that mm. we talked about in like mm -hmm. the healthcare space or for supply chains, etc. That takes up more than one terabyte of space today, and we haven't seen major adoption yet. Yeah. However, since all of this is based on cryptography, you can actually do some like cool tricks in order to uh, prune what is called the Merkle tree. So that's a cryptographic structure. This Never mind German? if you don't. <laughs> what is this? Merkle was probably a, a, of German descent. I see. Okay. The person who came up with that. I was thinking Angela, but concept. this is great. <laughs> No, but anyway, so you can prune that cryptographic tree. Yeah. The pruning, basically you discard some data, some information, but you still have the valuable like check-in points uh -huh. so that you can be sure that the blockchain's transaction history or state history is correct without storing all of the information on your computer. So it's like a bonsai blockchain. Yeah. Where you That's just a have good the essential pieces it. of it um, that are usable. Is that... No, so for example, I run a node only tracking like blocks on the Ethereum blockchain on my laptop. And I think it takes up around 70 gigabytes. Now, that's still a lot yeah. because we haven't seen like major adoption, but it's much more manageable than like 1.2 terabyte that I couldn't even fit into yes. my hard drive. Wow, this is fascinating. So I'm curious what's happening in the data labs. So this is blockchain. Mm -hmm. There's the, the other data labs that we have, Data X. There's some amazing things happening there. What's uh, exciting you there? So we run a lot of different projects in the data lab. Mm -hmm. And as you said in the beginning, I'm currently like the research director for the data lab here. Uh, so I'm overseeing this project. I'm not the leader for every project, but I'm basically a project manager or a PI. Um, and currently we're running one project that is called the LinkQuest project. Mm -hmm. It basically revolves around how we can revolutionize the current like global telecommunications network. So we want to move the intelligence from the very like back end of servers who get information from every cell tower mm -hmm. in the world. There's a six hour delay currently in order to get analytics about like w what service quality is your are your users experiencing and also how is the network state overall hmm. this is ridiculous in the days of like 
artificial intelligence, data science, right. and when we can get like real-time information. So the LinkQuest project is about moving this intelligence engine from the back end to the front, to the actual like cell towers, so that the cell towers can be intelligent and make decisions in real time. So for example, if you have an event, mm -hmm. then many times if you go to a football game here at the Cal Stadium where we yes. are recording this podcast, yes. then many times you will drop your service no. from your cell carry. No, but that's true, I'm, right? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and also it's like very difficult to stream Yes. Like YouTube, or if you want to upload a video to Instagram and stuff, yes. many people are experiencing bad service. Then with our solution that we're looking at for uh, the LinkQuest in the LinkQuest project, we want to be able to like send out a text message to all of the people that are experiencing bad service, how they can solve it potentially, or when it will get better to have like projections like that. It will be value added services mm -hmm. on top of your like current cell plan. Wow. And that is something that many telecom companies are interested yeah, in. Yeah, I, I could certainly see that. Speaking of the stadium here, I certainly have those issues when I'm rooting for our Cal Bears to uh, beat other teams. Um, so what else? Are, are there other exciting projects you can think of? Yeah, definitely. So Amazon actually reached out to us in the beginning of this semester in August, and they wanted to sponsor activities related to natural language understanding and natural language processing nlp exactly so some of you listeners might wonder so what is natural language that is what steven and i are using right now yes. to communicate with one another so it's like spoken language written language but english or swedish or i don't speak swedish no i do actually <laughs> I do, that's right um but anyway so it's like normal language a way of communicating right but now there's a lot of research being done on how to make your computers understand language. Mm -hmm. And some common examples of that are Amazon's Alexa, Apple Siri, or like Google Home, right. also like Google Translate, how you do machine translation, all of that. You know, it's interesting. When I first heard NLP, I thought of the old neuro-linguistic programming, which is essentially the way that people work and interact. And then I hear NLP and I'm like, wow, what are people doing with that nowadays? And it's, it's <laughs> natural language uh, processing. Uh, and, and students are using this all over the place. I mean, we have a student in one of my classes, freshmen, building this in products for a 360 degree review tool. It's amazing. Exactly. It's amazing, right? Because if you can teach a computer to understand mm -hmm. either like written text or spoken words, uh, verbal language communication, then all of a sudden you have a whole new way of interacting with your devices. And all the big tech companies are saying now that the next revolution when it comes to the like user interfaces, how we're going to interact with our devices is going to be through speech. Right. So Apple is betting on it, Google is betting on it, Amazon is betting on it, and we're part of that effort for Amazon right now in the data lab. Have, has it come to the point where the processing is really starting to understand contextuality in language? Because I think this is really the final frontier, right? It's one thing to, okay, I know what the words say, but given specific context, they could have completely different meanings, right? It's like, dude. That word can mean so many things. You could say, as a question, dude. You could say it as a statement, dude. 
you could say it as excitement, dude, right? There's all these different contextual elements that that one word can have. And obviously you string words together, you have all this stuff. Are we getting to the point where we can understand this now? Yeah, definitely. So if you gave me the weekend, I could actually design an NLP system that would understand all of the different variations of the word dude, depending on how you like how you said it. I'm from California, as you can probably tell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but since we're collecting so much data when it mm -hmm. comes to like spoken words and interactions between people, communications with devices now also, and the users can give feedback. Like So when I'm talking to my Alexa device, then I can actually like give feedback to Amazon if it's not performing well, and then they can improve the system. I see. We are making tremendous progress on this frontier right now. I'm curious. So if you're a founder out there, yeah. Right? You have an idea. What of these technologies do you think is the big one? Like the, the, the internet back in the day. Do you see that as NLP? Do you see that as blockchain? I mean, is it literally the buzzword soup, blockchain, NLP combined? Like how does, how does this play out right now from what you see? I think if you want to change the world and make the world a better place, it's better for you to like bet on blockchain technology because mm -hmm. then that can power uh, individual empowerment so that we have user owned data true sharing economies mm -hmm. so like an uber or an airbnb without the middleman taking out a huge chunk of like the revenue but mm -hmm. you would pay the driver directly but that destroys businesses that destroys businesses but it empowers people yeah uh so if you want to this won't like that <laughs> i know that but <laughs> That, that's what I'm saying. If you want to change the world, then it, according to me, make it a better place. Mm -hmm. Like blockchains can also power like financial inclusion. It's about banking the two billion people today who don't have a bank account. Many of them have a smartphone and an internet connection. Especially in developing nations, right? Exactly. I mean, a really big issue. So they have the opportunity to leapfrog the West now right. because they don't have current infrastructure that they have to rebuild, but they can jump on the current like modern technology mm -hmm. and make use of that right away. I see. But then if you want to make money and if you want to start us, <laughs> well, I think most founders typically, you know, I know there certainly are some social good, especially we're at Berkeley. We get a lot of that. I think at the end of the day, there has to be the financial inducements are what drive a lot of people. So if you want to make money and there's no way to, well, there is a way to do it on blockchain. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of people have made money through ICOs. Yeah. Oh, so let's for talk example. about that. Now, now <laughs> there's some hucksters and shysters out there with these ICOs too, though, right? I would say that over 95% of the ICO projects are uh, straight up scams. Great. So, so do making money. Yeah, and do due diligence, like thorough due diligence, if you're ever going to invest in one of those. Mm -hmm. So tell me... I'd love to hear your thoughts then on the monetization path for these blockchains companies. Is is it literally just um, transcribing currently current data systems into this new quote unquote format of blockchain, and there's a services business or model? Is there disruptive other things like you you gave the example of Uber and Airbnb, right? If you know blockchain and breakfast, whatever we want to call it, comes out and there's no fees and it's just happening naturally no one's making money on that so are people going to want to create businesses where there aren't these really high raise 20 billion dollars of venture capital and take out your money is is that still going to happen 
So w- once again, now we're in the like realm of speculating here. Of course. Uh, but so so just what I said now, only like a minute ago, that I don't think that you're gonna be able to make a lot of money through blockchain technology. Of course, there will be some companies that finds mm-hmm. way to like utilize this technology in order to generate tremendous revenue. However, I think we should look at blockchain technology more in the perspective of that it's like a protocol that is free for everyone to use. Mm-hmm. And I think like a, a, a good analogy protocol exactly a good analogy is to look at the internet in the early days. So what powered the internet and what still powers the internet when it comes to like finding computers mm-hmm. on the internet, they have an address related to the TCP IP right. protocol. You send information on the internet with the HTTP protocol. You send emails with the SMTP protocol. You can also locate devices all around the world with a GPS protocol. You don't pay anything to use these. They were like gifted to the public. They were research projects that then became totally open source. We're going to see that happening with blockchain as well. And so you're saying that if it's kind of this underlying infrastructure, people would develop businesses on top of that. And those businesses that can be developed on top of it can make money. Yes, definitely. And also because many of these applications, services, the softwares that will be created, Mm -hmm. they will rely on smart contracts. Then in the smart contract, because you're exchanging value through this system. Right. So you, you, sh- you should think about blockchain as a value layer, value infrastructure that you can put on top of the internet in order to transact value between people in a trusted way. So, so help me understand then the layer versus the ledger, because the way I understood it was a ledger, right? You have two things, they come together and you have a balance, if you will. Mm-hmm. Is that different than what you're saying, the layer? No, I would say that they are synonymous. Okay. So the layer is only an application layer that we add to the internet now in order to be able to like own our data, to track where or our data is have used. Google or Facebook own our data for us, right? Exactly. But I, I want to live in the world of like Web 3.0. Yes. Uh, and that is the world where we own our own data. Well, and we can like, nice. choose who we share it with and how it's monetized and what happens with it. Do you think that happens with blockchain or do you think regulation steps in? I, this has already happened in Europe, right? Yeah. Uh, do you think that steps in here in the United States and loosens up some of those where we actually own our data? I think it will be a hybrid. So we will have regulation and also the regulators, they will see the value of using blockchain technology in mm-hmm. order to enforce their regulations. Wow. And is this close? Is it closer now, given the current state of things? I mean, we just had Tim Cook coming out and really tearing into a couple uh, companies who will remain nameless Google, uh, Facebook. Uh, um, you know, sorry. Uh, but is this closer now, given the current environment? Or is this still a ways away? Because the blockchain technology sounds like the layer is still being built. So we don't have those standard protocols. We have different competing things out there. And that's not ready yet. So what we have right now and what we didn't have two or three years ago is that we basically have hundreds of thousands talented developers looking at blockchain technology now. We're teaching classes on blockchain here at UC Berkeley. They do it on every other like serious engineering school on the planet. So because we have that ecosystem now, I think that we will see major progress 
now in the upcoming like two three years and after that global adoption it takes some time for a new mm -hmm. technology to truly like manifest itself and i think the gartner hype curve illustrates that very well right. um so are you saying there's now enough developers and technologists about ready to pounce on the opportunity that really is that transition period exactly oh, okay and i would say two three years two three years why two three years because it takes time before everyone gets used to like using a new technology in that mm -hmm. way and we see implementation in all of our devices people are we still on the up cycle of the hype or are we on the down cycle definitely on the down cycle people are so. starting to doubt oh, okay the potential of blockchain technology now because i mean two years ago or a year and a half ago people basically had the sentiment and people said that this technology would be able to power governments it would like give all the people on the planet ownership to their own data we wouldn't have the need for like banks or these like big old institutions we wouldn't need to trust them anymore but blockchain hasn't lived up to that promise or that expectation well, that was put up two years you know, ago. Extenuating circumstances, governments aren't going to like that. Businesses aren't going to like that. There's going to be a lot of hesitancy, right? If you say that we have something that basically makes banks irrelevant, that's a multi-billion dollar industry that they're not going to say, oh, yeah, you know what, this is great. Let's Let's do this. <laughs> No, exactly. So, of course, you're going to meet a lot of inertia in that way. Mm -hmm. And also, What's I mean, the tipping point, though, like what is this tipping point? Because, you know, I'm sure that every bank is going to have their own little, quote unquote, blockchain division mm -hmm. to make sure they already it, have. Yeah. To yeah. make sure it doesn't disrupt them. But that does not mean that they are going to widely accept you no longer need us as an intermediary. No, but so, so when we get an application like Angry Birds that depends on blockchain. That would be the tipping point. Okay, walk me through that because I don't get that one. So, I mean, we had the iPhone yeah. for a long time before Angry Birds was released, right? Yes. And then you had the App Store and you would download different games. You might download like a United application that only took you to United's website. You didn't re really see the value mm -hmm. of the applications that you got to your smartphone except for like the phone application, the text application the email application and those were all built in from the beginning but then when angry birds was released all of a sudden you had a game you had a smartphone application that was addictive that everyone played i remember this like only looking at the lecture hall in 2010 and more than 70 percent of my like engineering co-students my <laughs> classmates were playing angry birds instead of listening to the lecture and that's so, probably my class nowadays but keep going <laughs> <laughs> no but so, so when you see major adoption of an application that people get addicted to it's not like they need to use it but they really they want to use it constantly and they are but on the, the platform think, though, as much well. the, ac the access though the the thing that made that happen is that you had the app store you had access to it whereas i'm not sure that banks and anybody else is going to let people even have access to it but right now today you have access to what are called decentralized applications so these are applications that require a blockchain mm -hmm. component mm -hmm. like a smart contract so i even have two browsers on my phone mm -hmm. one is called the trust browser and one is called the cipher browser both of these can interact with smart contracts and that is because i store 
a cryptocurrency wallet in that browser. But how, how is it Google works. and Facebook going to track you if you do that? Oh, they can still track you. They can track you what websites you are visiting, etc. But it, so how those is, applications. How does Goldman Sachs and Bank of America, Wells Fargo, how do they make money off of you when they do that? So, I mean, if we transact only using a blockchain protocol, so if you moved all of your resources, all of your investments and mm -hmm. put them on like the Ethereum blockchain, so you created a wallet for yourself and you moved all of your assets mm -hmm. into your cryptocurrency wallet. You, then they wouldn't make any money. But bear in mind that the whole crypto space is very volatile. Yeah, so you could, you could lose all of your money. So all of a sudden you can be kind of broke or super rich. So it this, depends. Implies, this implies then that the majority of people have to have the trust in this, right? That there is some type of commonality that... We, it all like boils down to trust. Yeah, just like we do in God We Trust on our current bills in the United States. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not sure if they put that in euros. Um but there, there's this inherent trust that fiat money is actually, quote unquote, worth something. Mm -hmm. Where does that transition happen for cryptocurrencies or blockchain? But so let, let me ask you a question sure. and also the listener. Why do you trust that the dollar carries any value? So why do I or why do I think most people? Because those are different. I want to hear both so, answers. So here's here's what I think is we live in a current structure where we make this up, right? We believe, we have quote unquote faith that it is worth something mm -hmm. and there's nothing more than that. The dollar is a dollar, it doesn't, doesn't matter. It's our perception, if you will, or our, our construction of value Mm -hmm. we put into it it's almost like some people believe in god and some people don't right some people believe a dollar is worth a dollar and everybody believes that not as many people well i think a lot of people still believe in god so so that's that's what i think no and, and that's exactly true i mean we trust the issuing organization mm -hmm. institution so like a central bank or the Federal Reserve, whoever is printing the money and issuing the money, we trust them that whatever they say, that this like physical representation or digital representation of value, what they say that that is worth, it's going to be worth that. So you, you have said that over and over that we have like fiat currency today. Mm -hmm. So it's not backed by anything. In the 1800s, then like the British pound and the US dollar was a gold-backed currency. So you could actually go to the Federal Reserve, you can bring them $10,000 and say, okay, I want this value in gold, and they would redeem it for you. But during, after World War I, many of the countries in like the westernized world, they found themselves in ruins, and they didn't have a way to increase their money supply in order to rebuild their societies. Mm -hmm. So they abandoned the gold standard because they couldn't like dig up more gold right. <laughs> in order to finance infrastructure. And then they introduced fiat currency instead. So it's not backed by anything. And that's the same thing when it comes to Bitcoin or Ethereum. They are not backed by anything, but the trust that we put into this technology, mm -hmm. that the hashes being tracked on a ledger, mm -hmm. that they actually have some value. Mm -hmm. That's still, I think, I st that's still, it belies that we need institutions mm -hmm 
to give it validity and trust. And my question is, is how do those institutions that have no monetary incentive lend themselves to backing something that literally could put them out of business? I don't think they're going to back it. We will actually get to the point. Yeah. There will be an inflection point. And this is me speculating once again. Sure. Uh, but we will get to an inflection point where this technology works so well that we will start to see like major adoption across all societies, almost globally. So people will start transacting because of the benefits, like no transaction fees, mm -hmm. instant settlement, peer-to-peer -peer trading. Like if I wanted to give you $10, I wouldn't have to go through PayPal systems or Square systems or... Okay, you're, you're, you're making a lot of people very uncomfortable right now, right? <laughs> no, but so... You have a instead whole financial of industry <laughs> that is going, Alex, <laughs> the hell are you talking... No! I think it's inevitable because the technology already works today. We have some scalability issues, as you mentioned. So one is like the disk space. The other one is that it wastes a lot of electricity today sure. to come to consensus around what is like the true ledger, the true transaction history. But society is going to flip to that. I mean, mm -hmm. technology is changing the way that we live and the way that we conduct our lives so rapidly today. And only two of these frontiers are like one is blockchain, one is artificial intelligence mm -hmm. that I think is going to shape the way that we live our lives even more than blockchain. Mm -hmm. And we just have to get used to the fact that life won't be stable. I don't think we will work uh, the same way that we do today. Life won't be centered around like working mm -hmm. eight hours or even more five days per week, only 20 years from now. Is there, you know, this is going to sound like a crazy question, but is there a possibility that this doesn't work? And what I mean by that, is there a possibility that we're looking at Betamax right in the face and VHS is just going to keep dominating and Betamax has a little blip and then goes away? Or, you know, the laser discs blip goes away. I mean, that might be true with the technology that we have today. But all of a sudden, someone will release Netflix and you will look back at VHS and be like, okay, why did we even bother? Mm -hmm. So that's going to happen both in the space of and like artificial intelligence and blockchain. blockchain specifically, or do you think something else revolves or evolves, I should say? It would be something that is that has the same utility as blockchain, but I don't know if it's going to be blockchain per se. Uh. There are also some of these systems, they aren't called blockchain systems, but they are a data structure instead that is called a directed acyclical graph. So it's a mathematical Sounds kind of data structure. Yeah, it's very <laughs> cool. Like, feel free to Google that and you can be immersed for hours. Anyway, those are beautiful structures in order to track transactions in parallel. I see. So you don't have to have... Um, like a link of blocks that mm -hmm. is consecutive, but you can have them spread out through like directed edges wow. and stuff like that. So it, it, that will take me 30 minutes to explain exactly how that works. But there are many, many cool blockchain-like projects yeah. based on DAGs. And I think that might be like one of the solutions to the scalability problem, to the energy wasting resource wow. problem interesting so there there are alternatives in blockchain then may not be the end-all be-all it may be just uh, 
you know, almost an on-ramp to something that evolves and is more universally applicable. Because I still think trying to have all these banks and governments, man, that's just, you're freaking people out, right? <laughs> you know, there are people who their life is government. Their, their thing is banking, you know, with some of the students on campus. Um, and anything that's going to upset that car, Jamie Dimon would not be happy. <laughs> um, no, exactly. And I, yeah, but I also think it's kind of symbolic that the Bitcoin white paper was released in the fall of 2008 in the midst of like the financial crisis when people lost so much faith and trust in the financial institutions that we have seen or that we have had a notion of that they're so stable. I mean, only look at the buildings of like the Federal Reserve and stuff. They look like ancient buildings that have been there forever and that are going to last forever. But so when all of that like structure when all of those organizations when all of those fundamental institutions in society when that like trembled the mm-hmm. fundament for that then bitcoin was released was and that was like the, this is an alternative. you know obviously no one knows who uh how do you pronounce this satoshi nakamoto. satoshi nakamoto they don't know who this is right there's some speculation i've seen but they don't actually know yeah that's remarkable because that person also owns more than one million bitcoin and because the ledger of transactions is public for Bitcoin, we can be 100% certain that that person or group of people have never touched their wealth. So they have over $6 billion with today's like market value of Bitcoin, and they haven't used any of it. Wow. And so were, were, was there a precursor, right? Was there anything that inkling out there that said, hey, this is this is coming? Yeah, definitely. There were other technologies that led up to blockchain or Mm -hmm. even like Bitcoin. So Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever that was, a combined technology used in a system called Hashgraph. There was a time-based system that was also immutable. We also have other like digital cash technologies in the 80s and in the 90s and in the 2000s that Satoshi Nakamoto, he basically Mm -hmm. combined a lot of stuff. And the unique approach, like the unique solution that he came up with was the consensus protocol, the proof of work that wastes a lot of resources because you need to carry out computations in order to verify Mm -hmm. new transactions. I see. Uh, Interesting. So I I want to touch, you started to talk a little bit about AI, artificial Mm -hmm. intelligence. Let's talk a little bit about that. You had some interesting thoughts. Where... You think that the whole way we work then may have to shift with AI. Definitely. And we can see that trend uh, that, that has taken hold of like society already. It's already here. So, for example, now when I've entered the job market, like I'm in the midst of my career, I'm not convinced that I will have the same job for like 40 years. So now the current like structure of life it's not that you educate yourself for maybe 10, 15, 20 years, and then you have a job related to your educational background until you retire, and then you're like retired and enjoy your last years of life. Mm-hmm. What happens now instead is that we can see this trend that you need to like, um, you basically need to learn throughout life and reschool yourself sure. in order to be able to enter new occupations. So, if you work at a telecall center today, for example, you work in support for some company, mm-hmm. that is going to be automated in five years. You think so? Yeah, a majority of those jobs will be automated. 
So, for example, if you need to repair your refrigerator and you call in to the producer of the refrigerator and you're like, okay, I'm having this problem, a computer will be able to like give you the 2,000 most common answers to whatever mm -hmm. question you have without any human like being tapped into that process. Now, if the computer won't be able to give you a satisfying answer, you might be transferred to a technical expert mm -hmm. that will actually be a human in five years. However, for the thousands and thousands of jobs currently answering basic questions, mm -hmm. uh, they will not be around. And that, that's gone away. I mean, that transition's been happening a while. Uh, exactly. A that, while, that's right? what I said, yeah. I, I'm curious, though, that there are some jobs that almost should be outsourced. But what do you do with all of the people, right? When you think about it, it it's it's kind of scary, right? There's There could be literally millions of people that don't have the skills, don't have the talents, and don't have the necessary opportunities. What, what do they do? So this becomes very much of a philosophical question right now. And if we look at what we put value on mm -hmm. when it comes to like our lives, then currently, if we define the meaning of our lives, many people start talking about their work, how they contribute to society, mm -hmm. what they are currently working on, what they would like to accomplish in their careers, etc. I think we will see a value transition moving forward where work might not be what we treasure like most in life or not something that would even be mandatory. Many people in Europe and also here in Silicon Valley are talking about um, basic income. Boy, you're going to have a lot of people not liking you for that. Well, <laughs> maybe not on this podcast. They'll be excited. But, you know, you're talking about giving people money for free. Exactly. I mean, I come from Sweden, so I actually grew up in a socialist society. Now, you realize that's nuts here for some people. But also, I mean, I think it's Peter Thiel and Mark Zuckerberg who has, like, uh, introduced the, the idea of universal basic income, and they, they got a lot of media coverage, so it became a thing even here in the United States. Yeah. We have talked about it for even longer in, like, Europe and in Sweden. But you're saying, essentially, the whole... American drive to start a business, be successful, make money. Like this is part of the ethos. This is why people come here to start a company, right? Um, to be entrepreneurs is changing. Definitely. I, I mean, shift. we would still have the entrepreneurs. And I think that that energy. You think so? There's, there's one hypothesis that if you just give people money for nothing, they're just going to take that and not be driven. But I don't think that it, uh, it will paralyze the people who have that energy already, mm -hmm. who want to like channel that and maybe start a company. So someone has to create these AI systems right. that actually replace the other workers, and we need the experts, etc. What we need to make sure is that we don't create a society of like experts who are able to utilize the technology in its full potential. And also that will become the most like privileged ones mm -hmm. who accumulate a lot of wealth because they own the AI system. So you have for the example. superhuman folks. Exactly. And then the, the normal like replaced workers who maybe were like truck drivers. Isn't or... that what we have now though? Yeah, and that's something that we need to change. How does that happen? Okay, this is very much a political question. <laughs> and I... <laughs> um, 
No, but universal basic income might be one step in the right direction. Uh -huh. I also think that tax systems and stuff like that should be looked oh, now at. Now we're really getting yeah, I, I know. <laughs> but now we're getting into Here is a socialist suite. I didn't pay for my education. The, the government pay, paid me uh, to educate myself. And I've never paid well, for hey, healthcare. Hey, that doesn't work. It's, it's very evident here that our current polis political climate that socialism doesn't work. Look at Venezuela. I see this all the time on <laughs> Facebook. Um, I say that tongue in cheek, you know, I, I'm curious for students, you know, as students, as they're here on campus now, they want to get involved with this stuff. What do they do? Oh, they should contact me. So AFO, Alexander, Fred, Ojala, AFO at berkeley.edu. Okay. How do they get involved with SCET, the Satarja Center, um, and other things that are going on? You have the classes. There's classes they can take as well, right? Exactly. So I think that we run around 12 to 14 classes every semester uh, through the center. So definitely sign up for one of them. Mm -hmm. Try to acquire the SET certificate that you have taken our classes. I think you need to take like five units plus the Newton series and attend a boot camp. Uh, I got that when I was a student here, by the way. Uh, me too. <laughs> and how about how about for professionals out there? How do they get in on some of this education that we have going on? Do we have any professional programs that they could join, workshops? Yes, yeah, so we have the executive leadership program running in the Silicon Valley. So that's four and a half months of weekly like executive training on innovation leadership, innovation strategy, and all of that. We also have a global program that will run now next week. Oh. So that is like at the end of October, now 2018. Um, and it's called SVIL, so Silicon Valley Innovation Leadership Week, mm -hmm. where we bring in like company representatives from all over the world, as well as like academic partners, so that they can be exposed to what is happening here at the front when it comes to emerging technologies. Is there another way where some of these professionals or companies can get involved? Uh, you mentioned this link, Linksys. Uh, Linkquest. Linkquest, sorry. Uh, Linkquest, if there are other firms like that interested, how would they get involved? Yeah, so just as we have the Amazon project and the Linkquest project in the data lab, then we actually let companies, if they have stumbled upon an opportunity that we also think is extremely valuable, mm -hmm. then they can host a research project in the data lab or in the blockchain lab. And then we would gather entrepreneurial students and also students with very like deep expertise in artificial intelligence, data science, computer science, or blockchain mm -hmm. that would work on that specific topic for three to six to 12 months. Wow. And then we would like design deliverables. I see. Cool. So one last question here before we wrap it up. What is your favorite song? Oh, wow. Um, that's a really good question because I am a music lover. Yeah. Uh, so it definitely changes. Okay. From time to time. But now, so I would like to give a recommendation that I don't think, no other guest will say this okay. song. And it's also by a Swedish band. I would say it's one of my favorite bands Swedish in the world. Swedish band. Okay, great. The, the band is called uh, Brother Daniel. It's Bruder Daniel. Brother Daniel, okay. But the song is called Luke Skywalker. Luke? Like the, the main character in Star Wars. That song is so energizing, it's so naive and it's like simplistic indie approach. And it's very much about all of the energies you had as a teenager. I love that song. Brother Daniel? Yeah.
with Luke, Luke Skywalker. Skywalker is the name of it. All right. If you can edit that in towards the end of the episode, I think the listeners would love that. Cool. And uh, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for joining us. It really was a pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure, Stephen. All right. Bye-bye. I try to get her for a while. But now I can't stand here anymore. Cause I'm a sky